You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting remotely for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones. And I'm Abe Shapiro. This is the WFHB Local News for Wednesday, September 7th, 2022. Later in the program, WFHB correspondent Abe Shapiro speaks with attorney Jeremiah Fry Pearson about a lawsuit against rideshare company Lyft over its alleged lack of wheelchair accessible vehicles, or WAVs. More on that in today's Disabulletin. Also coming up in the next half hour, various and sundry scams on Better Beware, your weekly consumer watchdog segment on WFHB. More following today's feature. But first, your local headlines. Good afternoon. This is the WFHB Local News Brief for Wednesday, September 7th, 2022. I'm Benedict Jones. Seven new cases of monkeypox were reported in Indiana, according to the state health department. That brings the state's total to 179 cases. Last week, the Indiana State Department of Health launched a new dashboard for the monkeypox virus, showing the number of cases broken down by age group, gender, ethnicity, race, and public health district. For more information, you can visit monkeypox.health.in.gov. The Bloomington Police Department made an arrest in a sexual assault case after photographs of the suspect were released to the media seeking public assistance. An 18-year-old woman reported she was assaulted at the Morton Street parking garage after 10 p.m. on Thursday, September 1st, according to a BPD press release. On Wednesday, September 7th, police arrested Andre J. Hardy, a 27-year-old man from Joliet, Illinois. Hardy was charged with rape, criminal confinement, and sexual battery. Hardy was transported to the Will County Adult Detention Facility in Joliet, where he awaits extradition to Monroe County. Bloomington residents have reported a foul taste and smell of the city's tap water. The main reservoir for Bloomington and Monroe County is Lake Monroe, which is a common source for recreational activities for members of the Bloomington community. Earlier this year, WFHB correspondent Kai Fitzgerald spoke with Sarah Powers, a liminal scientist at Indiana University, who said the foul taste and smell of the water is a result of increased algae blooms in Lake Monroe. The amount of cyanobacteria in the lake has been pretty constant over time. So it's not a new issue that we're seeing due to nutrient inputs from the watershed is a primary source of where that's coming from, as well as nutrients in the lake and in the sediments. You're going to have background nutrients there. We'll feed the algae. And the algae is completely including the cyanobacteria, which are actually a photosynthetic bacteria, not necessarily an algae per se, uh, but we kind of loop them all in together. But they're a natural part of the food chain. So they should be there and they're 
very healthy and good. It's good to have a nice, diverse community of algae. They're the basis of the food chain. Very critical. It's just when we, the nutrients start to exceed some point, they can grow in overabundance. And as we're seeing warmer temperatures, warmer temperatures later into the summer, we're starting to increase the amount of total algae. According to the Bloomington Utilities Department, the current taste and odor of the water is not a public health risk. Residents who have further questions can contact CBU's water quality team. The 24-hour hotline is 812-339-1444. Or customers can send an alert through the U-Report system at bloomington.in.gov slash U-Report. That's all for the WFHB Local News Brief. For WFHB, this is Benedict Jones. At the Monroe County Election Board meeting on September 1st, Monroe County Election Supervisor Karen Wheeler brought up a concern with the amount of time it takes to communicate with late CFA4 filers. Wheeler proposed the board considers a new system to curb any confusion moving forward. I'm wondering if we need to do a different kind of system. Maybe one of you know how to do this better, but it has spent, I've spent a lot of time since this was late, not just this one, but a lot of them, multiples, letters, calls, emails for the same person. And I don't know if we need to think about the penalties being differently if you don't respond. I really don't want to penalize people, but I think I'm spending way too much time trying to follow up and then make sure I make it, mark it down and respond. And I don't remember ever doing this this much before. County Clerk Nicole Brown agreed with Wheeler and explained why she was concerned with accepting written filing appeals. I think that brings up a very good point. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay, she had asked if this was that candidate's first offense. Oh, yes. But I think that this was the concern that I had. We haven't all been together for a while, but this was the concern that I had when if the standard is going to be accepting a written explanation versus coming in person to explain yourself um, because it's not taken seriously, and candidate candidate filings are very a very serious matter. Um, and thank, first, thank you for the work that you have put in trying to reach out to that candidate. In the past, we have talked to the party chair for the candidate to have the party chair nudge them. Um, I'm sure that's happened. Um, I don't know if either of you would be willing to reach out to the party chair to see why we've not gotten that explanation or that, because how many months is this? April. April. I, I think this is beyond the pale. Board member Donovan Garlitz suggested they establish clear expectations before the next election. My opinion would be to revisit this after this election cycle and, and set forth our expectations clearly. Um, and I think if we're not responding at all to requests, and I don't know the exact circumstance if that candidate showed up that day that we had virtual and was actually here. And I think that's a bit of a gray area, but if we set out our expectations and then people just ignore them, whether it is written or in person, I think that that immediately just 
moves you to the next category. And yeah, I, mean, I think it needs to be taken seriously no matter what. And I'm not, and again, I'm not being accusatory that this isn't taken seriously. We don't know the circumstances of this particular, if it would, if we certainly it came or not. Brown added that the reason the CFA forum meetings are held in person is to ensure the candidates take the form seriously. I can give you a bit of background from my chief deputy clerk days in that my predecessor wanted those CFA board meetings to be held here so that it was taken seriously. This in an emergency can serve as a courtroom in Monroe County if something should happen at the Justice Building. And so she thought to have those meetings here and public so that candidates would take the fact that their filing was late seriously. And so I was out of town May, June, but um, I, re I did watch the meetings and that was my concern as the discussion came up about um, a written explanation being sufficient. I see. In that there's, there's gotta be some accountability. Right. And as, especially with all of the trouble as Karen mentioned that she goes to to make sure that you're notified in plenty of time when it's due, you're notified as soon as the it's over, the deadline has passed, that you missed the deadline. You're given opportunities. We we've taken very liberal consideration for if it's your first offense, getting a warning, if it's your second offense, getting a stronger warning, to then, you know, not even bother to respond to the communications. I'd like to remind the board that we had one after the presidential election where he moved away and he just simply stopped yeah. responding to us. This is a serious matter. And every candidate is held accountable for filing the appropriate paperwork at the appropriate time. If that is not taken seriously, what is the point of taking office? In my humble opinion. Board President Shruti Reyna supported Brown's opinion that they are being too accommodating by accepting written comments. Right. And so we were actually being a little bit extra accommodating, perhaps, by allowing people to submit written comments, kind of in part due to the in-person, you know, we were transitioning from COVID and everything last spring as well. Um, but it sounds like this person has complied with neither. <laughs> right. So, okay. Even, even the more generous standard. Brown said reaching out to individuals was a courtesy, not a requirement. I don't want it to be missed that we already go above and beyond, particularly Karen. This has largely fallen to her. It's been a, it's, it was intended to be a courtesy. And I feel that this could be mistake, mistaken kindness for weakness. Mm -hmm. And I don't care for that in as far as the seriousness of the late filing. Raina shared what she thinks they should do moving forward. Yeah, I, I agree. And you've pointed out it's been going on since April and it's now September, right? Um, and there's been numerous communications. So, yeah. So, um, so in terms of, I guess we need some kind of motion, but maybe since we're still discussing, can I propose something like that for our next steps that, that, that you know, that we... Do take take it upon ourselves to be very clear about the procedure. We've already, I think, we already have a procedure established, 
but that also we take the step you suggested of having the party chair nudge the, the candidate, but that if we don't receive any kind of response by our next meeting, I think we should read the warning into the record so that the public knows that there's a candidate who hasn't complied, but also, you know, we've given them multiple chances to explain themselves to the public and explain what happened and hasn't taken that opportunity. And I think it's fair for us to read that warning at that point. We're not saying anything pro or con about the candidate, right? We're just reading Correct. the warning that they haven't complied with, that they failed to comply with the requirement that we think is quite important. The board agreed they would revisit the procedure to ensure it is clear what their expectations are before the next election. The next time the board meets will be on October 6th. In today's Disabulletin, WFHB correspondent Abe Shapiro speaks with attorney Jeremiah Fry Pearson about a lawsuit against the rideshare company Lyft over its alleged lack of wheelchair accessible vehicles, or WAVs. Lyft officials cited limited supply of wheelchair accessible vehicles and driver availability as reasons why WAVs are only available to Lyft riders in nine cities across the entire U.S. To provide more insight on the issue, we turn to an interview with attorney Jeremiah Fry Pearson of the disability rights group Westchester Disabled on Move Incorporated. Good evening, I'm Abe Shapiro and this is Disabilitin. My guest today is Jeremiah Fry Pearson, the lawyer fighting on behalf of Westchester on the Move in their lawsuit against Lyft. Since receiving his law degree from Stanford Law in 2003, Mr. Fry Pearson has sought to advocate for individuals to obtain their civil rights. His notable victories range from helping individuals reclaim their right to privacy by successfully settling with companies following data breaches to ensuring fair wage compensation for employees. As a result of his victories, he has won for his clients. The National Trial Lawyers Association has selected Mr. Fry Pearson as a member of the Top 100 Trial Lawyers from 2014 to 2018. Mr. Fry Pearson is a member of the Best Attorneys of America, a distinction limited to less than 1% of attorneys, and he's also designated as a super lawyer. Mr. Fry Pearson practices in federal and state courts throughout the country, and his areas of expertise include class actions, privacy, consumer fraud, employment law, and civil rights. So, Jeremiah Fry Pearson, welcome to the Disabilitin broadcast, sir. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Now, just for some background information, I always like to start my guests off by really understanding how they came to the disability sector. So, first and foremost, how and what led you to a career in law, and why specifically the disability sector, especially bearing in mind I do know that you worked with one of the architects of the ADA, Senator Ted Kennedy. So that's a long question, but I, I chose to go to law school over 20 years ago because we live in a society where powerful interests, for lack of a better word, often harm regular people. And I know a legal degree is a tool to make things a little bit more fair. So that's why I went to law school, and I've been blessed in my legal career to represent you know, people who were in unfair situations and make their lives a lot better and change broken systems. So I'm very, very blessed with how all that has worked out. 
I did work for Senator Kennedy or intern for Senator Kennedy over 20 years ago, but as an intern, my contributions were almost limited to walking his dog, literally, so I, I can't take ADA credit for that having happened, although his, his contributions to the ADA as well as President Bush, is, they harken back to the bipartisanship that, that I miss in terms of making government work for everyone. In terms of this case, I have a brother who has significant special needs, so I've always um, been involved in the disabled community. And I, for a while, chaired the Mayor's Committee of People with Disability in my hometown of White Plains. And we heard from numerous constituents about how Lyft was refusing to serve people in wheelchairs. At the time we filed this lawsuit, it was almost everywhere, and it still remains almost everywhere. In 96% of the areas where Lyft operates, it refuses to provide any service for people in wheelchair-accessible vehicles. And you might be wondering about the 4% of the areas where it does provide wheelchair-accessible service. Why does it do that? The only reason Lyft provides wheelchair-accessible service in the 4% of the areas where it does is because regulators in those jurisdictions tell Lyft, either serve people in wheelchairs or we won't let you operate at all. Every single time Lyft has been required by a regulator to serve people in wheelchairs, it has done that. And every single time, what Lyft does is it provides the bare minimum service possible. The person in charge of Lyft National Wave, and Wave is short for Wheelchair Accessible Vehicles, the person in charge of it came up with a plan to provide National Waves everywhere in the country cheaply, and then the executives decided not to do that. And then they came back with the line that their biggest risk is being forced to scale, which in English means Lyft's biggest concern is being forced to serve people in wheelchairs everywhere. Where it does provide service, it intentionally provides the worst service possible and, in fact, sabotages that service because it doesn't want to be seen as providing good wheelchair-accessible service because then it would be made to provide more service. And where I live in Westchester County, New York, the situation is particularly grotesque because the area where Lyft provides the best wheelchair-accessible service is in New York City, where they're required to do so by regulation. Oh, yes, I do. I did read about the TLC's 25% mandate and the controversy that did arise over that a number of years ago. So I do understand that, that there has been some significant progress there in New York City. There's been very significant progress, and it came in large part due to the expert witness in our case, Alex Elagudin, who designed the regulations in New York City. Lyft, as it always does, first argued that it couldn't possibly serve people with wheelchairs in New York City, or otherwise it would go bankrupt and have to leave New York City. Like most of Lyft's other arguments that it uses to avoid people with disabilities, that argument's a lie, and that includes Lyft's argument, we're not a transportation company. Lyft now provides much better service in New York City. And what we know is every month, many vehicles drive from New York City, wheelchair-accessible vehicles, to Westchester County, right in the suburbs where our federal courthouse is located. Those vehicles, when they're in Westchester County, Lyft blocks them from advertising as a wheelchair-accessible vehicle. So you can be sitting on one street in the Bronx, right, and you can say, I'd like to get a wheelchair-accessible vehicle. There can be a car on that block, and Lyft app will show it. You walk across the street, so you're no longer in the Bronx, and you're in Westchester County, you're to wheel across the street, and you'd like to get a wheelchair-accessible vehicle. You see none. One of the basic things we're asking for is Lyft just turn off the blocker. Let people with disabilities be served. And we're hopeful that if Lyft doesn't do that voluntarily, that Judge Halpern will make them. 
Absolutely. And uh, again, thank you very much for your service with regard to that. What would you say are some of Lyft's arguments to turning off the toggle system? What are some of the arguments that they have made? So Lyft has spent millions of dollars. They have great attorneys. They have very smart expert witnesses. They've spent millions of dollars defending a system that I believe is indefensible. And in addition to their arguments that they're not a transportation company, or that the Americans with Disability Rights Act or the New York State Human Rights Law don't apply to them. There are two main arguments, and there's there's two things we talked about, the toggle and the blocker, and they're a little different. But the main reason for why they have the blocker in 96% of the regions, which prevent any wheelchair-accessible rides, the real reason they have it is they think they're above the law. Their justifications are really twofold. One, they say there aren't enough people with disabilities to justify Lyft serving them which is insulting. And imagine if McDonald's said, in this small town, there's only 15 people in a wheelchair, so we're just not going to have our stores be accessible. The ADA was passed over 30 years ago to prevent that nonsense. Um, the other argument they make is that their service might not be good enough for people with disabilities because there might not be enough wheelchair-accessible vehicles, and therefore they shouldn't provide any service. And what makes that argument really gross is, as I'm sure everyone who's tried to call a lift is experienced sometimes, Quite often, there aren't lifts when you call lifts as an able-bodied person. In fact, in many areas in the country where lift operates, the usual result of calling a lift is no lift is available. And if one is available, you have to wait a long time. That's certainly true in rural areas for able-bodied people. Now, lift does not refuse to serve able-bodied people in those rural areas. It's not a single instance where lift said, you know what? Our service metrics aren't good in this county, so we're just not going to serve able-bodied people. They always provide service. But what they say when it comes to people with disabilities is, well, our service might not be very good, so we should provide no service. Again, to use the McDonald's analogy, <laughs> that's like if a store where, for whatever reason, the service wasn't very good, you know, it took like 20 minutes for them to make your burgers. And so they go, look, it takes us 20 minutes to make these burgers. And, you know, it's even harder for people with disabilities to get into the store. So we're just not going to serve people with disabilities in this store. That's really what Lyft's argument comes down to. It's insulting. And we look forward to it being declared unlawful by a judge. I can understand as well the frustration, especially with regard to uh, some of the arguments that Lyft makes, especially uh, that they may not have the resources. And I understand as well uh, that some of these transportation companies work with third-party providers and, uh, and do work to recruit drivers, and yet company officials hold that these solutions aren't feasible. At the same time, why do you believe Lyft is combating these allegations, and why would there not be enough way vehicles? Or is that just a way for Lyft to push aside the allegations against them? I honestly think it's an excuse or a pretext. I, I can't know for sure what's in people's hearts, but I've deposed the people that Lyft puts in charge of its program. I've deposed Lyft executives that have taken their testimony under oath, and I've seen their internal documents. And what they say is not, oh, man, we really want to serve people with disabilities. We just can't figure out how. What the internal documents very clearly say, and what Lyft's wonderfully coached witnesses will almost admit and will basically say the words that make clear that this is true when you have them under oath, is Lyft doesn't want to do it. And I think the honest reason why Lyft doesn't want to do it is because Lyft got into this business to expand transportation. And when they did it, they weren't thinking about people with disabilities. No one's saying that 10 years ago when Lyft started up, 
they were maliciously setting out to revolutionize transportation and exclude people with disabilities, but they were setting out to build a transportation empire and they didn't think about people with disabilities. And then when advocates started saying, hey, you got to serve wheelchair users, their initial instinct was, well, this is inconvenient for us. And rather than deal with the fact that they would have to do some basic things to serve people with disabilities, they lawyered up and they fought it everywhere. And again, the only time Lyft has served people with disabilities who are in wheelchairs is when the jurisdiction has said, you either serve people with disabilities or you leave. And because that has not happened nationwide, we're using the Americans with Disabilities Act and other civil rights laws to make Lyft fix this, what I think is just really discriminatory, gross conduct. Up next, various and sundry scams on Better Beware, your weekly consumer watchdog segment on WFHB. We turn now to host and producer Richard Fish for more. Welcome to Better Beware. Here's your consumer watchdog from WFHB Community Radio with the latest information and helpful hints designed to keep your head out of the clouds, your feet on the ground, and your money in your pocket. Oh, there are lots of scams out there, and some of them get pretty wild. To start with, there is a group of websites based in China that are getting complaints for the largest single kind of fraud going on today, swindles involving buying things over the Internet. Two of the names which have come to light are EN Oasis and EN Island. All of these sites apparently start with EN, which is probably a reference to the English language, What do they do? They take your money, send you an email saying your purchase has shipped, give you a fake tracking number, and nothing arrives. The sites simply do not respond to any communications thereafter. Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg, Elon Musk, and other billionaires are being victimized these days. Scammers aren't sucking money out of them. They're using their names to get money from you. There was a Facebook ad claiming to be from Bill Gates offering a get-rich-quick system for playing the stock market, and other scams offer payments of $1,000 or more just for doing something simple like forwarding a message. Everyone knows these guys have so much money they can afford to give out $1,000 bills, but everyone needs to know that they aren't doing it. The latest version of the famous Nigerian Prince scam, also called the 419 scam, is an email asking you to prove you're alive. The sender says somebody has told them that you are deceased and is trying to claim a big bunch of money that is actually yours. If you can demonstrate that you're not dead after all, they'll send you all this money, after you pay some fees up front, of course. This is the modern version of the old Spanish prisoner swindle, and it continues to work again and again all over the world. 
Then there was the con artist who convinced the officials of a Mississippi prison that he was an agent of the Drug Enforcement Agency. He was allowed to interview the prisoners without surveillance, and when he started talking to them, he told the prisoners he could arrange to get them out of prison if they could get their relatives to pay a hefty fee up front. The guys in prison were smarter than their jailers because they blew the whistle on this faker who found it a lot easier to get into the jail than to get out again. Selling something online and getting paid through PayPal? Watch out for buyers who tell PayPal they never received the purchased item and watch PayPal take the money back out of your account. Some scammers are even double-dipping, contacting their victims after they've been ripped off, pretending to be lawyers or detectives, and offering to get the stolen money returned, for a fee, of course, to be paid up front. We can't keep up with all the con artists out there. It's up to you to do your own research, be aware, and beware. I'm Richard Fish for WFHB News and Public Affairs. Better Beware comes to you from WFHB Bloomington, Indiana. Find all our episodes at WFHB.org. If you can help put the kibosh on a con, email beware at WFHB.org. Remember, swindlers never give a sucker an even break. Support for WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. More information online at mpisolarenergy.com. 